From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. So anyway, going to Roger's office, uh, he tells me I have pretty eyes. He did. Five times in like five minutes. I know. I think I got off easy. Right? Right? Okay. And that was Sally Cohn. You've probably seen her on the pundit circuit, first as a progressive political commentator on Fox News, and now on CNN. Cohn is out with a new book, The Opposite of Hate, which tackles the whys and hows of bigotry and hatred in both a big picture sense and a personal one. When I was sort of doing the re- both looking at the research and having conversations with you know, ex-neo-Nazis and ex-terrorists, but also my own internet trolls, people on the right, people on the left, is that pretty much no one wakes up in the morning intending to be hateful. We talked about her fascinating findings in the book and the alleged misquoting controversy that surrounded it. If you haven't heard much about that, it spotlights a quote Cohn had included in her book from the host of the Call Your Girlfriend podcast, Aminatu So, which So disputes having said. We dove into Cohn's own background, how she sort of stumbled into the TV punditry business, and how her community organizing prepared her for it. I also spoke with Cohn about something she's never really discussed before, and is still, in some ways, trying to process, her interactions with Roger Ailes during her time at Fox News. Stay tuned for our interview with Sally Cohn. On the podcast, we'll be bringing you real talk with women bosses, asking, how did you make it? And what advice would you give a woman looking to lead? If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter at APalmerDC. Women Rule is produced by Politico in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. And now, our interview with Sally Cohn. Sally, thank you so much for joining us. We are here today in New York City to talk about you, your career as a political commentator, and also, of course, your book, The Opposite of Hate, A Field Guide to Repairing Our Humanity. Hi. No small, I, no small topic I love that there. People, it's like we're here in New York City. And, you know, I don't know, in podcast world, they're picturing like skyscrapers. And, you know, and we're actually in a tiny white box um, that I think usually holds shoes. I mean, this is it, this is small. It does look like it it's could be like right. a terror chamber or something. It's I don't fun. know. Like you know, <laughs> what do you have in mind? <laughs> no, the bright lights just missing. All right. Well, let's. Whoa! It just got it just got serious. <laughs> well, let's talk about the book uh, because it's a very interesting premise. It's kind of this broad look at hate. <laughs> How very interesting premise. She's against hate. Crazy. <laughs> But, you know, how it's evolved, you know, what its cultural roots are, how do you navigate it? Uh, in this era in particular, we were just talking before, it's something that it's not just person-to-person hate anymore. It's people can be very uh, hateful online. Um, what were some of the more surprising things you learned in writing about the book? Um, oh, boy. Uh, we could fill the whole, the whole conversation with that. You know, it's... Um so it is interesting to think about sort of hate in this moment, just picking up on what you said, because I actually don't think this is the most hateful moment in American politics. I'd be curious to hear your take. But, like, if we're being honest, in the United States of America, we have a pretty long, deep history of hate. We're a country right. that in many ways was founded 
uh, in an act of genocide that through uh, you know the institution of slavery was a country built on hate. We had a civil war. We had massive eras of intense incivility. So I don't think we should romanticize the past right. in any way. Um, I do think, to your point, though, there is something unique about this moment, which is that once upon a time, you know, maybe you and I could have sat in a, you know, in the back of the classroom and been hateful, uh, you know, passing notes to one another, but it would have stayed between us. And now, with a few clicks of a button, anyone can not only be, you can be inundated with hate in, in terms of the 360, 24-7 news cycles and media, but also social media, but also we can all participate in it. So there's this way in which we're all sort of surrounded by it, but also implicated in new forms. Um, and the thing that surprised me was the, and I guess, I don't know, well, at this point maybe it's not surprising, but it was at the time, right, uh, when I was sort of doing the, re both looking at the research and having conversations with, you know, ex-neo-Nazis and ex-terrorists, but also my own internet trolls, people on the right, people on the left, is that pretty much no one wakes up in the morning intending to be hateful. And most people, by and large, uh, <laughs> they they think that the other people started it. We have this sort of, you know, they did it first, they started it philosophy of hate. And so if I do something hateful, it's, even if I acknowledge that it's hateful, it's, oh, it was in react, I was in, right. I was being reactive, I was right. being defensive, I was right, it was justified. But that someone else, them, right, we're always pointing the finger at them. They are the ones who originate the hate. They did it first, they did it worst. And the thing that surprised me is everybody does that on all sides, <laughs> whatever side you find. And in that dynamic, here we have this fascinating phenomenon of what is a pretty intense and epically hateful era where no one feels it's their fault. No Everyone's one's responsible. frustrated by it, but no one feels that they actually have some piece of responsibility. Yeah. So talk about that. You mean you, you, you talk to people from all different strands of life, um, including a, a neo-Nazi, and you had a conversation about what drove him to that community. What did you learn about what appeals for people about a hate group? Because, I mean, when you're kind of putting that hat on, you're saying, okay, like, how could I think like you, right? Yeah. You know, this is, it's interesting. And every time I talk about it, I think, am I, is this right? I mean, it seems so not, not correct. Um, but in, in the case of his story, so he's an ex-neo-Nazi, the ex part being very important <laughs> right. here. Um, and part of, because I wanted to tell these stories of, you know, we think hate is so inevitable and uh, unyielding. And so to find stories of people who had left really extreme, intense forms of hate behind gave me some sense of hope that it's possible for all of us. Uh, hope gives readers hope, too. Uh, I, when, I, when I met this guy, Arno, so in his, in his heyday, uh, he was the top neo-Nazi white power recruiter in North America. He was the lead singer of a very influential white power band. Yes, that's a thing. Um, and, uh, when I met him and was hearing about his childhood and his upbringing and whatever, I was desperate, desperate to find some evidence of like, oh, okay, it was that. Like, there's the thing that his parents did or that his school did trip or wire. where he lived or, yeah, like some avoidable, you know, variable, uh, as, as people, as parents, certainly that I could say, okay, that's it. Don't do that. Um, and what is true of his life but what is also borne out in the research of current terrorists and, uh, you know, current Nazis and uh, people who participate in violent right-wing 
hate groups, um, is that by and large, they don't seek out these groups because they have some firm, deep extremist ideology. They've got bits and pieces of the ideology, but rather they're seeking belonging. They find belonging in these groups. And then the term that the academics use is that they slide into the ideology. So for instance, in violent and the kinds of uh, violent uh, anti-abortion groups, the kinds engaged in clinic bombings. There's, a stu there's studies that show that the people who join those groups, in the beginning, they aren't even that firm in their anti-abortion beliefs, let alone in supporting violence in service of those beliefs, but they're sort of disaffected, they're looking for belonging. We know that's true. That's how terrorist groups and gangs recruit. And they deepen their connection, they deepen their bond with the group through intensifying their hate. And at first that seemed completely, it made no sense to me whatsoever, except then well, I- kind of a frustrating I, answer. Right, except then I realized two things. One is, okay, you have to then realize that, that the bits and pieces of that white supremacist ideology, at least in the case of Arno, are in, in the air that all of us breathe in this country through our history in the past and our habits in the present. That's, that is, in fact, the nature of hate. So it was there to be deepened. And the idea of bonding through hate feels so alien until uh, you realize, like, oh, wait, that's what I've been doing since 2016, right? Like, still, even though I've written this book, like, I still, you know, when more than three of my friends get together, inevitably someone starts complaining about not only Trump, but Trump voters and how stupid or racist or this or that they are. And that's bonding. Like that is a form of social bonding over hate. So we all do it. Talk about that. I mean, one of the things I thought was really interesting is the concept of online trolls and this kind of, I mean, anybody who's in public life now, and you are, I certainly am. Preach, girl, <laughs> preach. Hey, if you face them, I mean, do you do you look at them or do you, uh, you do what I do, which is kind of like put the blinders on and decide, like, I'm not going to engage because, you know, it's not going to do me any good and I could literally sit online all day long responding to people? Yeah, no, I know. And it sucks. I mean, the first thing is people need to know it sucks. It's the worst. Um, it's literally the worst. It is literally the worst. And when I, you know, when I first went to go as a lefty lesbian to go work at Fox News, it wasn't the Sean Hannity's and Laura Ingram's of the world who were upsetting and jarring to me. In fact, I was part of the journey of this book was realizing that they were complicated, interesting people who in many ways supported things I thought were hateful, but in many ways were kind and, and we could find areas of agreement and to recognize the complexity of those who I saw in complete totalistic other terms. Um, but what really hurt me was the trolls. What really hurt, and I don't mean hurt personally, like when they call me stupid, I know I'm not stupid, so I'm all right. Right, you confidence, I mean. But yeah, I, like I'm all right. I mean, I don't, nobody, no woman likes being called fat, so going on television and being called fat, like that's, that's, I am, despite what half the internet says, a woman, and it does hurt my feelings, that's true. But by and large, it didn't like hurt my feelings or hurt my sense of self or whatever, it hurt my sense of humanity. Like, what is wrong with us as a species, as a society, that we have produced a climate where people feel like they can treat other people this way? Uh, complete strangers, let alone not strangers. I mean, just, it's not like it's, it's unconscionable. It's so personal. It's mean. And I'm just like, 
And I'm not saying, I'm sure I've, you know, well, okay, so this was actually, this is where it gets interesting. It goes to that, that, you know, they started at philosophy of hate, right? And in that sense, in that sort of spirit, I called up some of my worst trolls. And what was fascinating is... Put on your brave pants. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Which pants are I know. (laughs) And what was interesting is, I mean, first of all, what was interesting is that most of them thought, like, thought I wouldn't, wasn't even seeing those. They're like, well, I didn't think anyone paid attention to those. And they know Twitter's public. They understand it. That wasn't it. It was that I, it was a sort of metaphor for that they, why would anyone pay attention to anything they said? That they were feeling voiceless and marginalized and right. And here I was with a voice that people paid attention to and right. And so that was very interesting and reflective of the moment we're in. Um, that also people feel that to have a voice, they have to be mean and nasty. So talk about the controversy around the book. This is something that uh, you weren't expecting and I think has probably been very difficult. Um, yeah, uh, well, it actually happened for some weeks before the book came out privately, uh, but publicly, uh, be, uh, right after the book was released, um, in it, two uh, black women uh, raised concerns about how their work and their words were cited in my book. Mm-hmm. Um, I I have tried, it's been a month now, I have tried uh, over and over again to both clarify the facts, apologize for um, m- both the mistakes I made, my own shortcomings, the things I wish I'd done differently, and, and in all honesty, my blind spots as a white person and how I uh, represent and characterize uh, these two black women in my work. I, you know, my, that wasn't my intent. Mm-hmm. Intent isn't the same thing as impact. And that was the impact. And uh, it makes me sad. Uh, and I'll continue uh, to uh, apologize when I have the chance. And um, all I can do is continue to learn, grow, try to be better. Um, and Try to hope that we, you know, try to model, hope, uh, how we can engage. Look, we need to, the critique is how we all learn and grow, individually and as a society. And it's very frustrating to me in this moment that, you know, in conversations with, for instance, people on the right, when you feel like, look, I'm critiquing the United States, I'm critiquing our history in the past or our policies in the present, and that doesn't mean I am un-American or don't love this, right? That's, critique is how we get better. Um, and we need to find ways to engage in critique offline and on in the media and privately, uh, that are constructive and not destructive, uh, that, uh, help move us all forward in, in positive ways. And that's what I'll continue to be committed to. So talk, I mean, talk about that because that's a learning lesson, but like the overall point of the book, right, is, I mean, a field guide to repairing our humanity. And you talked about before how kind of the elasticity of our democracy, and this isn't the worst time that this that we've ever seen, right? But why do you think this needed to be written now? And what do you hope if there was, you know, the one takeaway that is the lesson that people can hopefully learn from the book? I um hmm, it's a great it's a great question, actually. You'd think in a month of doing this, you'd think someone would have asked that. Look, I think 
The only way things get better is if we change policies and institutions and systems. And generally speaking, the only way we do that is when people change. And I believe people can change. The reason I do what I do is I believe people can change. And right now, we tend to treat people as though they cannot change, as though they are forever the worst thing they've ever done or said or thought in life. And look, people are free to think that, whatever, but like, I don't think that's, people aren't going to change that way. So for instance, I don't think people are just who they voted for in 2008 or 2016 for that matter. But more to the point, I don't want the people, I'm a Democrat, right? I don't want the people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 to vote for him again in 2020. I want people to change. I don't want people who are homophobic in 2002 to still be homophobic in 2022. So the question is, am I acting in a way, individually, and then as a, as a movement, as a left, as a side, whatever, am I, are we acting in a way that gives people the opportunity and invitation to change or that condemns them to being their worst selves? And I think part of the problem is we've just decided, like, we're in camps and that's it and I hate you and you hate me and it'll never be different. I want to take a step back. Um, obviously, very prominent person in politics. I've, I've been involved in a lot of different things. You're from... Who are we talking about? Oh, me. Oh, okay. <laughs> Allentown, Pennsylvania. Oh, hey. You went to George Washington University in D.C. Um, then got degrees in law and public administration from NYU. Very accomplished. So uh, talk to me, though, about like that path. Did you always know you're you know, a small-town girl in Allentown, Pennsylvania? I've been there. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, Where'd you grow up? I'm from North Dakota. I didn't. What? I know. I mean, Holy I <laughs> hell! It all makes sense now. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know Dang. where that that means. But oh, yes. I mean, because it makes sense because you have like a very like uh, even keel, straight shooter. <laughs> but seriously, so uh, were you always going to be this? What did you want to be a doctor? Did you want to you know be a teacher? What did? Uh, how did you get here? Okay, so. Um, uh, I was an only child in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Still have an only child <laughs> that I know of. Um, and sort of raised uh, white upper middle class parents who instilled in me a sense of volunteerism and a sense that, you know, uh, part of – they didn't have a real critique of structures and systems of power and inequality. But what they had was a sort of like – look. they taught me, look, the world isn't fair. You have more, and your duty is to give back. And so from a very early age, um, we volunteered. Uh, kind of and duty, uh, duty is sort of a social service mm-hmm. kind of, um, uh, you know, whether it was uh, as a kid, we volunteered with the Planned Parenthood Clinic and domestic violence shelters and, and gave back. When I um, – it wasn't until high school and then college that my politics became more radical. Um through, in part, reading, through experience, through mentors, uh, sort of helping me understand the systems Mm -hmm. of inequality and injustice, the connections between injustices, intersectionality, I mean, really uh, starting to unpack and understand that. Um, When I went to George Washington University, I thought I was going to maybe be an actor. Uh, It's true. You, you don't have any, you know, emotion or passion. I yeah, can't. and then, <laughs> thanks, thank you. And then, um, uh, and this is like, 
And then her career was one random stumble to the next. Uh, it's true, though. Uh, so I did a play in my freshman year, and Carrie Washington was in it with me. And I thought, well, crap. I'm going to need a new career choice because seriously, no, that's what I thought. Because somebody told me, my mom, I th- probably my mom, she's the fiscally prudent one in my life. She probably was one who said, you know, honey, only 10% of quote unquote, you know, working actors actually make a living as actors. And I looked at Carrie Washington and I looked at myself and I thought, I don't like them odds. <laughs> You're the I'm 10%. Screwed. So um, uh, I was like, I need another career choice. And I basically fell into organizing again because of mentors uh, and internships. And I started uh, an internship at the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. And then I went to go work at what was then the National uh, Gay and Lesbian Task Force and um, met uh, a woman named Urvashi Vad, who uh, was one of the foremost thinkers in the queer movement in terms of race and and economic inequality and how it was bound up with uh, oppression and inequality around sexuality and gender. And um, from there, spent 15 years as a community organizer and activist. Um, well, that, I, I want to. I do want to ask about. You mentioned Fox News. Oh yes. And you know, so you 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 go from <laughs> community, <laughs> community organizing as one does to uh, become a liberal commentator on Fox. Why did you choose to go there? I ask not why. I ask why not. Um, I didn't. It wasn't. Uh, it was not a conscious decision. I was drugged. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> this is breaking news breaking. right here. <laughs> In playbook tomorrow. I know. Um, I can't wait for that headline. <laughs> uh, no. So uh, it was 2009. I spoke at a conference. I was still an organizer. Um, I, uh, I mean, I was feeling some, like, some sense of searching of, like, well, what am I going to do now? And, right, and I was, and there was this very, you know, 2009, we have to remember, is an age where the Obama administration had, in very intentional ways, demobilized the base and sort of tried to say, like, all right, you, we got it, we got it, you guys, like, you guys be over there, we got this. Uh, And and the base, in a lot of ways, and at least D.C. institutions, uh, responded by being, like, okay, (laughs) Uh, as opposed to continuing to put pressure on the new administration. That changed, uh, you know, as the administration didn't deliver and both, I think, the administration and the institutional left realized that you need to create that pressure that creates the political will and space and to uh, really make change. So that was, I think, but so I was in the middle of watching that feeling frustrated and I spoke at a conference and uh, this woman comes up to me afterwards, and she says, we have to get you on television. And I said, no, we do not. I actually did say that. And really? I laughed at her. It's true. Kind of polite. So not laughed. D.C. I feel like everyone's like, yes, uh, I it should, wasn't be in a, DC. should be a TV star. Was- <laughs> <laughs> oh, I waiting see for my point. moment. <laughs> I see your point. Yeah, no, uh-uh. I was not waiting for my moment. Uh, I, I was an organizer. I mean, first of all, it was like, it wasn't something I ever in a million years even – it wasn't even like I'd thought about it and rejected it as an idea. It's just like, what? And I, I'm i an organizer and part of the ethos of organizing, very central to the ethos, ethos of organizing is you're not in front of the camera. You're the one behind the scenes. You're helping people get in front of the camera, the people who are affected by issues and people who need a voice. And um, so it was – 
completely antithetical to me. Um, so I, I, I did laugh at her and I uh, kind of politely and walked away and she grabbed my arm and she said, no, you're going to do this and you're going to be good at it. Verbatim. Her name was Geraldine Laybourne. She was the uh, first woman ever to run a TV network. She ran Nickelodeon. Um, not maybe the most helpful one for me yet. <laughs> yet. Hey, yet. Who knows? Uh, but then she and her friend Oprah started Oxygen. So she's not one who takes no for an answer. I figured that out pretty quickly and was like, uh, okay, I guess I'm gonna, I'm gonna, what I thought, what I honestly thought for the first year or so was I was like, okay, I'll still be an organizer and I'm gonna go learn this media stuff because it seems like it's getting more and more important in politics and I'll bring these skills back and be a better organizer. That's what I thought. And then I realized I liked it. I realized I liked it. I realized I was good at it. I found out that my, the community, the activist organizing community I came from, which I thought would be uh, resentful or pissed, was supportive, liked me playing this role. And, um, and also I realized like at core, it's a lot like organizing. It's just that instead of, you know, a hundred people in a church basement, you get a million people on television, but it's that same idea of translating ideas and animating, uh, ideas and, and engaging people and inspiring people and getting them active. And, um, and so it's stuck at least so far. <laughs> So talk about, so Fox, I mean, you were there, was it hard? Was it challenging? I mean, you kind of talked about the debate of coming from things from two different points of view. You you were clearly the minority view. I, I, uh, so, so it seems. Um, yeah, I mean, so for, you know, for the first year I did what baby pundits do. Um, I, uh, you know, went to Fox and CNN and MSNBC. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so you know, you know the, you know the circuit. <laughs> uh, and then I, uh, I saw this guy. Um, by the way, my first time, <laughs> this is going to be a good story. Yeah. Like. <laughs> uh, well, my first time on Fox, this is the true story. Um, my, uh, my first time on Fox, uh, my first time on television ever, period. My first time on television you went ever Fox? was Fox News primetime. I know. And you're like, see, she's shaking her heads, people, because she's like, what well, doesn't work like that? Like, that's yeah, not like, where's your, your weekend, like, 10 a.m. Yeah, like, 10 a.m. on a weekend. <laughs> that's how it's supposed to work. But, uh, so I did, so one of the things Jerry Laybourne did was she, took me and introduced me to Carol Jenkins, who ran the Women's Media Center. See, I want people, this is your point about women, like it, it takes infrastructure and it's yes. a network and it's about leadership and training. You don't just fall into this stuff. And so the Women's Media Center was one of the organizations that trained me, but the Women's Media Center still runs a program called Progressive Women's Voices, where they train women who are academics or activists or policy people how to do this. Because it's not like you don't wake up knowing how to do this. No, it's not inherently in your DNA. You don't DNA. know where to, where to look and how to sit and whatever and how to get your thoughts into a couple sentences. And so um, so by the time I went and did the training, Jamu Green, who's oh, yeah, at Fox News, was running the Women's Media Center. And she has set up a weekend for all the trainees to go and do an act or a morning. We did an actual live practice at Fox because she had relationships at Fox. Still does. She's a commentator at Fox. And, um, and so we went and got made up and went on air and did a little practice interview. It was really quite nice. And my practice interviewer was Allison Camerata. Somewhere there's vo video footage of this. So Allison and I sort of forged, uh, you know, kind of took a took a shining to each other, as my grandparents might have said, <laughs> and then have been fr good friends ever since. And in the green room, I met this woman uh, who, it turns out, um, uh, was Hannity's booker. Her name's Lauren Fritz. Uh, she went on to go work with um, 
Christy, and now mm. uh, I think is it WeWork. But anyway, she was handed his booker. We talked. We chatted as one does, whatever. And a few days later or weeks later, I got up my nerve to pitch her. Like, I got this. I got this. <laughs> it took a while. That was like learning how to pitch yourself and all of that. Like that was, that was, a, that was, a, that was a learning curve for me. And uh, anyway, so I call her up and I pitch her. And she is so friggin' rude to me on the phone. So rude. So completely like dismissive, rude, mean, whatever, and basically hangs up on me. And I'm like, uh, I still remember where I was standing in Manhattan when I made the call. And then I still remember where I was standing about two minutes later when she called me back and was like, oh my gosh, I just realized who you were, that we met. I'm so sorry. Like she had forgotten meeting or forgotten that that was you know, the like name and the face her. and the whatever. And so... Felt so badly she booked me on television. <laughs> and that is how I ended up my first time on television, period, was on Hannity. Uh, it, I was on with Essie Cup. We were debating federal funding for uh, PBS right after Juan Williams was uh, like, that was it. That was why my first time on television. How the magic is made. Was prime time. There you go, folks. Just an exclusive just for you there, Palmer. I know. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. So, uh, so <laughs> I'm just still kind of stunned. I know. Like, so then a year after that, so I did all the networks and whatever, and a year after that, I saw this guy on the street. I th- he thought he looked like Roger Ailes. Um, so I waved at him. He waved back. Turns out he was Roger Ailes. He calls me into his office the next day. I'm not kidding. I can't even handle this. I know. This. I'm like, well, Sally has this, this calculating, careful career. Sally just stumbled from one thing to the next. No, you know, but you had the, I think it takes, well, a lot of I mean, it takes a lot of balls to well, go. It took a lot of balls to wave at Roger Ailes. Yeah. Balls or something. <laughs> anyway, so I go into Roger Ailes' office. And uh, I mean, listen, I've been very fortunate. I think part of this is like fortunate, right place, right time. You know, they were, they were very fortunate falls from one thing to the next. Um, so anyway, I go into Roger's office. Uh, he, he tells me I have pretty eyes. He did. Five times in like five minutes. I know. I was like, all right. But I mean, let's My be honest. Best I think I got off easy. Right? Right? Okay. Um, I mean, <laughs> when, I, when, I, <laughs> when I left Fox, I'm going to tell you this one because you're going to put it in playbook. Are you ready? Yes. Are you I like ready? this. I'm go. already. <laughs> Are you ready? You got yes. this? All right. When I left Fox, I don't know if I've told anyone this. When I, I think I've said it in events. I don't think I've, anyway, when I left Fox, um, we could talk about why, but when I left, we then, he and I had a meeting again. It was the last time I saw him. <laughs> he said to me, he told me again how pretty my eyes are several times. And then he told me, <laughs> I can't say it with a straight face. Um, I mean, you're so beautiful. Men must not know what to do with you. And I said, wow. I don't know what to do with that statement, Roger. Like, what the? Mind you, by the way, people are like blown away by that. I'm like, do you realize he was saying like 50 crazier things of like his conspiracy theories about how Muslims were like, you know, tracing his every move. So I was more distracted by the things he was saying about like Obama and Muslims and right. Like Mm. that was like, I didn't like... The vague sexual harassment thing didn't register because there was like, well, there was just, there was, there was a lot to wade through, you know? Um, But anyway, there you go. Wow. I know. I didn't know we were going to go there, but but I'm I'm glad we did. Um, Why did you leave? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> not that not that like somebody telling you you be oh, wise five times is not you know I, reason enough to. But uh, so I was a fox for two and a half years. Um, uh, you know, and again, it was my experience getting to know the people on the quote unquote other side who I had had all these preconceived ideas about and and sort of mm-hmm. generalizations about that and realizing that they weren't totalistically hateful that led me to the journey that led to this book. And the sort of first step in that was a TED Talk that I gave. Um, my first one where, again, <laughs> when, you, when you say it like this, it sounds so messy. Well, so it was, it was an audition. So I did an audition to be on the TED main stage. So TED runs these sort of salons right. and you give a talk on a stage. In, in this case, it was in New York. And it, but it's like a mini talk and it's an audition to be on the big stage. So right. I didn't like do any of the legwork to like check with Fox that I was going to go do this talk. I just did it because it was an audition. Like no one was going to see it, right? And then they decided they wanted to just post that talk, not – no, no main stage for Sally. Just take that talk. Still cool. Like, great. Get to, you know, it was great. It's done really well. And, right. and so in the talk, uh, I refer to myself as a, a, a what do I like, a Fox News, lefty lesbian on Fox News or something like that. And at the time, this is, I think, different now. But at the time, you couldn't call yourself a Fox News liberal because it inferred or implied, or at least the way that they thought of it, they were very, 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 very cautious about that because they didn't want the inference that they were a conservative network. They were against that idea. They put they policed that very aggressively. And sort of early on, um, you know, the trouble I got in at the network was any time I sort of said anything that inferred or implied in any way that they had an ideology and that I was an aberration to that ideology. Like that was that was very much against their I think that's changed. I, I wonder. But anyway, um, I've heard it's changed. Um, but uh, so I gave the talk. They found out I gave the talk. They were, we were in contract negotiations and they didn't renew me because they were upset that I'd done that. And then the talk came out and they loved it. And it was great because an interesting thing about Fox certainly then is people did not, people did not leave unharmed. You know, they had a real, they had especially uh, under Roger a real history of sort of dragging people who left. So I got to leave on very good terms. In fact, fun fact, Roger gave me a blurb for my book proposal. For this? This book proposal right here. Roger oh, wow. gave me a blurb for it. Hmm. Yeah, I know, right? And, uh, and as did, and Hannity obviously wrote a blurb for the book. Uh, and uh, believe it or not, since that TED Talk encouraged me to write a book. One of the probably three or five people most encouraging, uh, you know, most encouraging me on to write this book was Sean Hannity. That's interesting. So anyway, then I went to CNN. The rest is, uh, as they say, modern history. I don't know. We are about out of time. Oh, but it's been so much fun. I mean, we could be here all day. But... I want to ask you um, one last thing about your personal life, and then we'll kind of end on things, but is you have a young daughter. I do. You have been pretty public about kind of raising her, the intersection of kind of being a childhood bully and all of that kind of stuff and how you deal with that with her. Talk to us about that. I mean, a lot of women who are listeners, our mothers, are struggling with these same issues. Um. Yeah. So I have a nine-year-old. Her name is Willa. Um, I'm, you know, I have to say, I'm not like, 
my jury, let's be clear, my jury's out on everything, right? Like, even, honestly, even this book, like, (laughs) there's a reason, you know, in the book, like, the opposite of hate is connection, right? It's not love, it's not even like, it's connection. You read the book, find out why, but I didn't call the book, like, connection, because it's not, like, there's no destiny, like, it's a journey. I'm not perfect. I'm still struggling with my own hate and bias, obviously. Um, and I feel that the same is, is true with parenting. Like it is a perpetual work in progress, right? Um, to know that I was a bully as a kid, to try to raise a kid who is not going to be a bully in spite of having, you know, uh, you know, you see, you, you see, you see when you have a kid how, there's this interesting way in which, as a parent, you see that we all contain multitudes, right? As Whitman said, mm. like, we all have the capacity for good and bad and whatever. And yet, they often and we often write off other kids as like, well, that kid's a mean kid, right? And then when <laughs> right. you see people do it to your kid, you're like, wait a second. Like, there's no mean kids or nice kids. There's kids who can be mean and kids can be nice. And that's all, of, you know, and and so too, um, but I'm still actively, you know, look, we've tried to be very clear about the values we want to instill in our kid, especially in this political environment, that we do not hate anyone. And that includes Trump. We don't hate people. You can hate ideas. You can hate things people do. But we don't hate people. All right. Well, Sally, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Oh, uh, thank you. I can't wait for the podcast where we get to talk about how you rule. Women Rule is produced by Rena Flores. Dave Shaw is our executive producer, and our booker is Jessica Andrews. If you're a fan of the show and you listen on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. We've got a lot of great guests coming up. In the coming weeks, we'll bring you conversations with Christina Tosi, the CEO and founder of Milk Bar, and the Black Women's Congressional Alliance on Capitol Hill. You don't want to miss any of those episodes, so hit that subscribe button, and thanks for listening.